and uh, you can see in your notes I cheated for you this week. I gave you all the answers in the slots, but uh, that way you can take your own notes as well. And we're just going to break down John chapter 4 uh, and start at verses 1 through 9. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. He cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the, to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied in his journey, sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or it's noon, sixth hour is midday. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So we want to start here in verses 1 through 9. Jesus, we talked about him in chapter 2. He started his earthly ministry. The first miracle was the changing of water into wine. And then in chapter 3, we talked about the conversation that he had with Nicodemus and then into explaining to John the Baptist who Jesus really was. And he comes down to chapter 4 and Jesus um, is realizing that it's time for him to leave and head to uh, Galilee. Now, and I meant to bring the, the, the board in, but you wouldn't have been able to recognize my drawing anyhow. So you'll just have to use your imagination and look, think of a map. But if, you, if I had a map up here, you'd have Galilee up here. You'd have Judea down here. And right in the middle is Samaria. And the Mediterranean Sea is off here to, towards me. And then Persia, Iran, Iraq, all that is, is to the further east. And uh, in those days, and, and especially, Palestine itself was only 120 miles from the north to the south. That's not very long, it's a two hour drive now. That's, that, that's the whole country, if you will. Um, but there were those three distinct. In that 120 miles, you had Judea to the south, you had Galilee to the north, and you had Samaria right smack down in the middle of those. And there was a century old feud, if you will, um, that sprung up between the Jews and the Samaritans and there's some things that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit in breaking down barriers because the Samaritans um, were hated. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And uh, to the point where they would literally travel around Samaria to get from Galilee or Judea instead of going through. It was shorter, obviously, to go directly through. But they would go all the way around and take uh, a couple of extra days just so that they didn't go through Samaria. And, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a minute. And then he comes to this well, or this fork in the road, which is Jacob's well at Sychar. And this well was probably 100 feet deep. And it's not a springing well. It's one of the wells that just kind of percolate and slowly refill and gather. And it's about noon 
when they get there and Jesus uh, takes a rest and sits down on the well and the disciples go off to find food. I want to notice a couple of things in, in this, in verse number four, before we come back to the notes here, there's, there's something that happens in verse number four that John lets us see uh, a depth of Christ that we have to remember again, the foundation that John set back in chapter one was to reveal Jesus and to reveal his characteristics. And Jesus is releasing here another characteristic in verse four, when it said he must needs go through Samaria. Um, this verse was setting Jesus up for controversy. And yet the concept of must needs is, lets us know that it was necessary. So it lets me know this, that Jesus will step into a controversial situation if it's necessary for a divine appointment to take place. Okay? He had to go through Samaria. Now, they usually didn't. The Jews usually walked around, but Jesus was saying, no, there's something that's going to happen in Samaria. I'm going to change somebody's life in Samaria. It's controversial. Any Pharisee, any scribe, any Sadducee, any religious leader of the day is going to look down on this. They're going to chastise us. They're going to ridicule us, but we're going to Samaria. And that lets us know how much love is at the basic uh, tenor of who God is. God loved us that he'll even go to a controversial place in order to meet us. And uh, and, and so at verse number four, we start seeing the crumbling of a barrier. Okay? Um, the Apostle Paul was a barrier breaker. Uh, he brought the truth of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world and to the Greek world, if you will. All the churches and the, the missionary journeys that he went. But this barrier was starting to be broken all the way back here in chapter four. And so there's a couple of things. John, through this conversation with this woman, lets the Greek reader know that there was no love lost between these two groups of people. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll share that with you here in the reason why in just a couple of minutes. So this passage in our notes here shows us a lot about the character of Christ. Uh, letter A there, it shows the reality of his humanity. We see the man Christ Jesus tired. It says he was weary in verse number six with his journey. And so he sat on the well. Now, he knows how to operate in the midst of his weariness. And I, I think that he was tired but at the same time, he knew what was getting ready to happen. And I, I believe that, like you and I, we can get weary. I know, I know there's sometimes on Sundays where I can be so tired, but I know something's getting ready to happen in the service. And so my weariness is replaced by excitement. And I think Jesus may have been that way in this place here. 
But I believe it's also very significant in verse 6 where it says he was weary with his journey. That John, who is more than any other writer of the New Testament, is revealing both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. He's stressing Jesus' humanity in this passage. He's letting us see that he was also a man that could get tired. So, God, in his infinite wisdom, when he robed himself in flesh, or the biblical term is manifest, verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh. When he did that, what we also see is that he allowed what he created in man to be the same limitations that this man, that he was going to become with, with experience. Which lets us know the fulfillment of that is found in Hebrews chapter 4, where we know that he was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. Okay, now that is more than just being tempted by the devil. Okay, because there's times when we get tired that it's very easy for us to fly off at somebody. We're tempted to not put up with as much. You know, we're cool, calm, and collected, but we get a little bit tighter, tired, and a little bit of grouchiness comes in. Okay? So that's, that word temptation, there's not simply what we would face as temptations that we face, but it's also just the concept of life. You know, we're tempted to take a nap instead of doing what we're supposed to do. We're tempted to, to you know, get upset when we should not get upset. And so that's the first thing. It shows the reality of his humanity. No, a letter B there, it shows us the warmth of his sympathy. What's that? Towards, well, yeah, towards the woman, especially in this passage, but really towards the concept of a troubled woman. Um, and, and I believe that it was a woman in this case because there was a bunch of barriers that were getting ready to come down. Um, and we'll deal with that here in letter C. But had there was something about Jesus that drew people to him. There was something that, well, let me put it to you this way. The pastor that I worked with in Kansas City, his name's Stan Gleason, you could sit down with him and you could get in trouble and he would correct you and you never thought he was correcting you. He was just that gentle. It's just, you walked away and you go, hmm, I think I was just corrected. You know, and, and, and but what that did was that led, I wasn't never worried about going to him with the situation because I knew his character and his sympathy for the situation would always outshine even if he was upset with something. Okay, something in Jesus, you have to think about this. The Samaritans hated the Jews, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and it's noon. It's the hottest part of the day. The ladies didn't come to the well at noon, and they didn't come to the well at noon by themselves. The ladies would come in the early morning or in the late afternoon, and they would always come in groups, and they would always have, that would be their social time as well as getting the water that they needed for the day or the evening. And uh, this woman was obviously an outcast even amongst her own people. And she came and she sees this man. In most cases, that woman would be ashamed and turn and walk away and never continue to approach 
the well. But there was something about Jesus that gave her a comfort zone to approach him. And, and I believe there is a warmth about Christ. And if we ever really recognize Christ and not recognize the religion of Christ, we would sense the warmth of Christ. What I mean by that is Jesus says, whosoever will, let him come unto me. Okay, but the religious folk say something entirely different. You can come unto Jesus if you get your act together and then come. Okay, if it wasn't that way, churches would be overrun with people. There's a song out there right now. Uh, I can't remember who, I think it's Casting Crowns that does it. Let it start right here. And one of the phrases is, if everybody could come like they are, the churches would be full. And, and, and that's really kind of, it's maybe not even a voiced terminology. It's, a, it's just a sense that you get because a lot of people in the world today, they see the big constructs of church and the expectations that they have where the church may not even have that expectation. It's the reason why it's fun to watch people come to Spirit of Grace for the first time because, and it has nothing to do with me because I'm usually not the first one that they see. But it, to see their face when they realize that I can get comfortable because nobody's judging me. It's just real. I, I, it's, we, we're, we all recognize that we're all miserable and need of, of, of God and that we're only who we are because of God. And, and so whosoever will, let him come to the come to the church. Listen, we've had some people that most churches or a lot of churches I would say that wouldn't let them come and get involved in the church because they haven't dotted every T and crossed every crossed every T and dotted every dot. They hadn't done everything that they were supposed to do and, and, and a commitment and all this kind of stuff. I'm of the opinion, I want to be like I want, I want to be a church that when somebody sees us from afar, they're not put off but they're drawn in. Not drawn into the church but we are the body of Christ. And Jesus is showing us here there's something about him that doesn't turn the woman off and turn her away and run away. It draws her closer to him and into a conversation with him, and which would be unheard of. Uh, so that's the second barrier that or characteristic of Jesus. And the third one is, is that he is a barrier breaker. He breaks down barriers. Now, I mentioned earlier part of the reason why Samaritans and Jews did not like each other because Samaritans were a mixed group. They were, they were intermarried between the Jew and the Gentile. And um, this began to happen in about 720 BC. Uh, the Assyrians had overtaken the northern kingdom of Samaria, or the northern part of Samaria, and had captured it and taken it over. And like most conquerors of that day, one of the things that they would do is not utterly destroy their enemy. They would take their enemy and they would infuse it into their people because then they would know, okay, husband and wife aren't going to go against each other. Families aren't going to go. And so they would intermarry and they would intersperse. Well, that's what the Samaritan people were. But to a Jew, that means they became unclean because a Jew was a legalistic person because of the law that was established way back when. If you remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Jewish law and the, the, the Talmud and also the Torah and all of the things that are listed there, the, the stack of laws. We talked about the Sabbath day's journey a couple of weeks ago. 
all of they were they were fanatics about legalistic things and uh, unless it was them trying to get around it but that's another story but the samaritans didn't apply themselves to the same law because they intermarried with one another and even in a strict orthodox jewish house today if there was an intermarriage between a jew and a gentile they would almost carry out a funeral service today saying that that person is now dead to them and uh because it would it would uh cause that whole group to become unclean if you will and so jesus is now stepping in and he's saying no no, no we're going to go through samaria and not only are we going to go through samaria but i'm going to have a, i'm going to have a rest at jacob's well and i always find it interesting i can't it, it's maybe it's a disconnect that all human humans have but in samaria was jacob's well <laughs> The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jews were not going to go even by Jacob's well to get to where they were. Um, and, and so that the first barrier right there is that he's going to break down uh, legal barriers. Okay, the concept of being unclean. The second one is he's going to talk to a woman. Now, rabbis. In the strictest sense, rabbis would not talk to women in public. In fact, the strictest of strict rabbis wouldn't even talk to their wife or daughter in public. It was just a forbidden thing. And so, uh, in fact, there were, uh, in your notes there you can see, there are Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they shut their eyes when they saw a woman on the street and they would walk into walls and doors and things. And uh, so not only was this a woman, but she was a woman of uh, notorious character. She was, not, she, was, she was not just the average woman of Samaria. She was an outcast of Samaria who came at noon in order to have a conversation with him. And, and so we see that Jesus break down, broke down barriers in that case. And so going on in this conversation, they begin this conversation, and I have a feeling that this conversation is probably longer than just a couple of verses we have. I think that this is kind of the Cliff Notes version that John is giving, to, giving us. But uh, he, she says this in verse nine, how is it that thou being a Jew askest, or, yeah, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for they have no dealings. And then Jesus answers and says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Um, it's interesting to note that He uses a phrase here. If you knew the gift of God, okay? Again, when you tie together John chapter one, John chapter two, John chapter three, what is the gift of God? Okay, it's love. What's the manifestation of love? Okay. I'm going I'm to wait for you guys to think a little bit. Go back to what we've been talking about since the start of the What's that? No. 
Not just tonight. I'm talking chapter 1 of John. What's the main foundation? Verse 14 of John chapter 1. The Word became flesh. Okay. John chapter 3, born of the water and of the Spirit. Okay. Jesus. Chapter 4 now, the gift of God. John chapter 3, verse 16. What does that say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and we know that his only begotten son is deity manifest in flesh. It's the gift of God. So now he once again is sitting here and he's telling this lady, listen, you're looking at the gift of God. God, deity, is now giving you something. If you understood who I was, you would flip the question and you'd say, let me have something to drink. Okay? He's setting the foundation. He's setting her up. This is, this is, we, would, we would learn well to share Jesus to others the way Jesus shared himself to others. He set her up so that she had nothing else she could say except this must be him. <laughs> and, and so he, he's saying, if, if you knew the gift of God, if you understood what you're looking at, who you're talking to, I'm not just some other rabbi. It, you, and who says, give me the drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given the living water. Now remember that John is writing this in 100 AD. Okay? So we can take things in an earlier chapter and connect them to a later chapter because he's writing and he's putting it all together. So what is living water? Yes. Over in John chapter 7, turn, turn a couple pages over. John chapter 7, verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's, he's now, you've got to follow me here. Chapter 7, he lets us know that living water is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's the gift of the Holy Ghost. In John chapter 4, he's saying, here I am. I'm the gift of God. I will give you living water. Do you, do you get the connection here? The connection is the Holy Ghost. Jesus is telling us in chapter 4, when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you're receiving me. The glorified Christ. Now, at this moment, she probably didn't grasp that. And at this moment, the disciples may have that. But John is writing 100. He's already experienced Acts chapter 2. He's already experienced the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord. He's already experienced the growth of the church. He's already experienced all of this. And now as he's writing and recapping the stories... The stories are making sense to him, and he's connecting them from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3, and now he's in chapter 4, and now he's revealing himself again in chapter 4, and when you tie it together with what he says in chapter 7, he's saying this to the Samaritan woman, if you knew who I was, I would give you myself. Oh yes, John was a disciple. So he's so he's recapping what happens. So 
reading between the lines here, the disciples had gone in. John had gone in with the disciples to get meat. And when they come back here at the end of the chapter, you're, see, you're going to see that they're astonished. And they must have recapped everything. Okay. So now in 100 AD, he's thinking back and he's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because they were written, I think, in the 60s. And he is, and so now he's taking the approach that's different than those three took, and he's getting ready to write. And the reason why we know how why he's writing different is because Revelation is different. And unfortunately, Revelation, the book of Revelation, has been co-opted into an end time book or a prophecy book. But that's not why John wrote Revelations. John's thesis statement for the book of Revelations is in the very first verse of the very first chapter, the very first words, and that is this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you read, if you read Revelation chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus, the book of Revelation is the continuation of his gospel of how Christ is going to be revealed in days to come. So it is a prophetic book, but the whole prophecy, see, we get all tied together with the bowls and the vials and the, the beast and the Antichrist and the 666 and all of that stuff. But really all of that's the backdrop of the revelation of God again. Okay? So all through the Old Testament, God is pictured in a certain way by man. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see God becoming flesh, but it's they focus in on the ministry of Jesus himself and not the overall picture. They don't start back in Genesis like John does. Then you get John who writes, and he writes basically from the beginning to the end, and he's, he's revealing that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. So when we see Jesus, we're seeing God. And then he takes it in his book of Revelation and he's saying, okay, this is how he revealed himself all through the book of John. He revealed himself in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten thought. He revealed himself at the wedding of Cana. He revealed himself a little bit more with Nicodemus in chapter 4. He revealed himself a little bit more with the Samaritan woman. We're going to get into more. But then he gets to Revelation. Now he's saying, okay, now I don't understand all of this. So I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I began to see some things. And this is how he's going to reveal himself in the future. And so the whole concept of the great tribulation and the beast and, and, and the harlot and all of the false prophets and all the things that are there is not to give us what's getting ready to happen. What it is, is it's giving the backdrop for the truth to be revealed, which is Jesus. And it's starting already. So we see this living water when he says he's the gift of God. That's the Logos made flesh. That's God made flesh. And in John chapter 7, it's Jesus saying, I'm going to be glorified. And when I'm glorified, I'm not only going to be with you, but I'm going to be in you. Because I will be the spirit of the risen Christ. Okay? And, and so, all of a sudden, in verse 11, the woman says to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw from uh, or draw with, and the well is deep. From whence thou hast, whence then hast thou? that living water. Um, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus, let me stop there for just a second. Verse 11 and 12 is what every single one of us does when Jesus confronts us with something. Well, you know, 
I want you to do this, my child. Well, God, how am I going to do that? Okay? She's saying, you don't even have anything to draw with. And then the second thing that we, so we first of all questioned him as to how he's going to do it. And then the second thing we always do is we go back to our past and we say, well, it's never happened this way before. Are you better than what I've, what our father Jake, and, and we kind of do the same thing because we're afraid to step into that new realm, that new territory in God. We say, well, God is, first of all, I don't know how you're going to do it, number one. But number two, is it gonna, how can it be better than what I've already had experienced? Okay, we, we do it all the time. And this woman is doing it. And so Jesus answered and says, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Okay, so in, in verse 14, if you want to write next to that, John 7, 37 to 39, it, it's, it's a, he, does, he does it again, same, almost the same terminology. And uh, when Jesus gives us that, it's the reason why the baptism of the Holy Ghost keeps on giving and giving and giving. It's the reason why I was talking to uh, Bradley Jones on Saturday at the men's breakfast. And uh, he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I think, two weeks ago on a Sunday evening. And uh, he said he was, he was amazed because he, he was telling me, he goes, it was so cool because I sat down and I put my headphones, the silencer headphones on, put some worship music on it. And, and I couldn't hear anything, but I just began to talk. And I realized that I was talking in that heavenly language again. And uh, I, I couldn't hear myself, but I knew that that's what was happening. I said, and it's never going to stop. You can do it all the time. It's a gift. It's what God's given you. It's bringing up in you. And uh, uh, it, it's, it's something that is, is life-changing. And so we see here, to a, in the ordinary language, in your notes, here's what I'm saying we see here in our notes. In ordinary language, to a Jew, living water meant running water. And, uh, but they also used running water, living water, in the idea of their thirst for the soul of God. And uh, and that's what Jesus was doing. He was stating that he was the anointed one who was to bring in a new age. He was going to be the fulfillment of Jacob's well. Okay? And that you would they would thirst for something that was that they would not thirst anymore. And it's interesting to note that verse 14 again uses the word whosoever whosoever chooses to drink whosoever takes what I have to give whosoever understands what's going on and accepts it that in them is going to be a well of water springing up and, and I'll say this as well on, on this notice the words a well of water springing up into everlasting life. There is some, how many have ever been to, I want to say Old Yeller, but that's the dog. Yellowstone. Yellowstone, what's the name of the? Faithful. Old Faithful, that's the one. I knew it wasn't the dog. <laughs> but have you ever been there and watched when it just begins, you can almost feel the pressure and then it just lets it go. That's what the Holy Ghost does for us. 
we mess up, we make mistakes, we sin, we act stupid, and we're, we're putting dirt, we're putting pressure on it. But if we are aware enough in God, there's going to come a moment when the pressure of the Spirit is going to overtake all the stuff that we have pushed the Spirit down with, and it will explode in us again. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, I, I've shared this story uh, many times, but I was, uh, I told you I was hired when I was 18. Um, I was a Bible college student and a youth pastor, and I was probably the end of my second year, so I may have just, just been turning 20. And at the end of my second year, because Trish and I weren't together yet, um, and so I had gone about three or four months, and I didn't feel God at all. Now, this was somebody that was going to class every day, that was in church multiple, multiple times a week, if not multiple times a day, whether it be chapel or youth service or regular church, or we would minister out from time to time. Um, so I was always active. I was in the choir, both the church choir and the college choir. I was, so I, in other words, I was, I should have been into, I wasn't feeling anything. I was doing everything out of obedience. And I just kept doing it, I kept doing it. And we got to, uh, it was around Easter time. And there's something that I've always done. Now we've never done it here, someday we might. But I've always written and directed dramas. And uh, we would always do the drama up huge. So we would transform the platform. And in Dover, when we were doing it, we had a drum cage over there uh, that was a fully built one. It's not like this one here, it was fully built. And so we built a uh, paper mache mountain that went all the way up to the ceiling. And we had steps up the back, out under the top of the, and that was Gethsemane. It was also the tomb where he came out. So when he came out of the tomb, there was all kinds of bright lights coming and smoke and everything. And uh, uh, and then in the middle, we had a two-story set for pilot scene, and then the doors would close, and we'd have a market scene, and then over here was another scene. Well, we were, and so we would start building a couple of weeks before, you know, obviously we went under construction, usually beginning of end of February, in order to have it ready for the drama at Easter time. And so and then we wrote the drama, and then we got the college students and the church people, we all, whoever wanted to be a part, and we gave them parts and memorized their parts, and we did all the acting and, and directing. And so I had gone almost two weeks without going to bed because I was still going to school as well as doing what I was doing. And so I'd go to school in the morning, and then I would meet the guys that were building after school and then we would build all night and we'd work on the lights and do all that. And then they would go home and go to bed at five o'clock and I'd go take a shower to get back to school and they'd go sleep until school was done. It was unfair. But, but anyhow, so I was involved in all this and I hadn't felt God. And I'm thinking, how can I direct this drama and get the God factor if I can't sense God? So I went in to uh, Sister Trout's, Janet Trout's office She's the one that um, her and her husband are, were pastors at the time they hired me. And so I went and I sat down with her and I said, Sister, I cannot feel God anywhere. And uh, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And here I'm thinking, okay, she's going to be merciful and sympathetic. And, and uh, she put her hands on her desk like this and she looked at me and she goes, 
welcome to the club. That was it. I was like, well, what does that mean? She goes, until you live based off of obedience, you'll never understand the true blessing when the water is flowing. And that spoke volumes to me, and obviously it still does years later, because life has a way of piling on top of the gift that God gives and the living water that God gives. And it's this life choice and this life choice. And some of the choices are choices that we have to make that we can't, it's not really a choice. It's you just gotta get it done. You know, the choice is do I go to work or do I starve? I better go to work. Okay, it's, that, it's not much of a choice, but that's what I'm gonna choose to do. And so we're gonna do that. And, and then it's, you know, house water is leaking. Well, do I just let it leak? Or do I choose to take the night when I had other plans and fix that? Or a car, or whatever. Um, and so sometimes it's just life. Sometimes it's our stupid decisions. Sometimes it's our weakness and our frailty. But we just keep piling on top. Well, if we keep doing what we know we're supposed to do, whether we feel it or not, eventually what happens is our obedience is kind of like the primer on the old pumps. We had one in our cabin growing up. We'd get up there on Friday for the weekend and you have to pull, bring it down the water from the cities with us and you pour it in there and prime it and then all of a sudden the well would come. That's kind of the same thing. Your obedience and doing what God wants you to do based off of the word of God and whether you feel it or not, it's like priming the pump. And then all of a sudden when you least expect it, that gift explodes in you again. And it's like, oh, there you are, God. And it's and, and that's what he's saying here. You're never going to thirst again. It's going to spring up in you. And then how did that gift come to you? How, what, what was your experience? Oh, it had, for me, it happened. I was actually running a TV camera. Um, we had, again, this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, so the small little cameras weren't a thing back then. Okay, so we had the big cameras, the kind that you saw in the old news things. We had one there, we had one in the center, one over there, and then we'd run the big cables up to the studio, and we would record our services that way. And uh, because we had a video, even way back then, uh, Pastor Trout was, they were ahead of their time. They already had, an on, not an online, but a video school all across the world that they would send videos to, and that was their curriculum. It was called the View Program. So I was one of the camera operators. So I'm standing over here on a box that stands about this tall, and I'm standing there running a camera. And you were never real spiritual when you ran the camera. So it was one of those nights where you just kind of wrote church off and you were doing, <clears throat> well, you were doing your job, but you were also communicating with the other cameramen and you were watching people and catching people and, and uh, you know, nodding off or snoring or clipping their fingernails and you'd bring a zoom into them. And anyhow. We weren't real professional all the time. And uh, the guy in the back was laughing, you know, because he'd make sure the one camera that was following was that we would be having a good time. Well, in the midst of talking in these cameras and, and recording the service, all of a sudden something hit me there and I was just out on the floor, just talking in tongues and I don't even remember how it happened. It just, bam, it, it, it hit me. 
And the next thing I knew, there was hardly anybody left in the, in the sanctuary. The cameras were all torn down, and I was still sitting over here on the floor uh, in the presence of God. And that's how it happened for me. So it happens different for everybody, <clears throat> and sometimes it may be a song that triggers it. Some, for some people, it's just a good cry. For some people that don't, that are prone to cry and show their emotion through tears, oftentimes when they're not feeling God or when that it's getting piled up, they haven't expressed God in that way. And so it's just a matter of breaking out in the cry. <laughs> so it just is different for everybody. Um, verse 15 to 21, the woman saith unto him, sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Isn't it interesting how human and stupid we are? Here Jesus is talking about something that is everlasting life, water springing up. It's going to be in you. I'm going to give it to you so you never thirst again. And she says, give me that drink so I don't thirst anymore and I don't have to come here. She's still thinking naturally. Yeah, that would be cool that I'd never have to come. And, and in the back of her mind, I think she's thinking, I don't ever have to come back to this well again. So I don't have to face any of the other women in the community. She's not even thinking big term here. She's, she's thinking little. And Jesus says, go get your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For you had five husbands. And he whom thou uh, hast not is now is not your husband. In that you said truly. And the woman said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. When confronted with sin, she compared him to religion. And we do it all the time. We do it all. God confronts us with our sin, and we're quick to deflect it and say, wow. Yeah. Or we, we acknowledge that he's talking to us, but we say, man, I perceive that you know what you're talking about. But it's not that, oh my, let me fall before you and get it straight. It's, hmm, you caught me. And, and so notice what she does here. She begins a debate with God. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye, that word, by the way, in Greek is plural, you worship, you know not what, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Um, in your notes there, I'm just going to let you kind of catch up on those notes. I'm going to just kind of hit some of these things in this passage here. Um, God is a spirit in verse 24, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am. And then italicized, it's he. Now, I, he, when you see an italicized word, it's always added by a translator. 
And sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. I think in this passage it doesn't, just like in John 7. Because when it says, I, that's speaking of the am. I am, which is the Old Testament name for God, for Moses when he went to Pharaoh. He said, tell Pharaoh that I am has sent me. Okay? So John is saying there, there's, there's some things that are happening here. And you have to remember again, John is just hammering this home for the Greek reader. Remember, it's written for the Greek church. And he is hammering it home. In John chapter 1, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. In John chapter 2, because of the, the way that he handled the wedding feast, he's God manifest in the flesh. In John chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus and being born again, it, it's God manifest in the flesh. Now here in John chapter 4, in this concept of worship, in verses 23 to 26, he is once again revealing that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And here's how he's going to do it. Notice this. The Father, uh, true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So let me stop just for a second and let me ask you why you think that in this passage, it's only the Father that's seeking such to worship him. Nowhere in the scripture does the Christ or the Messiah ask to be worshiped, just the Father. Why? Well, that's partly. He hasn't ascended yet. He's still a man. And what was the greatest sin of all time before the Garden of Eden and in the Garden of Eden? Pride. But what was the pride? What was the statement of pride? They wanted to be God. Satan said, I'm going to be, he actually said, above God. Adam and Eve said, if I eat of this, I'll be like God. Okay? So as a man, Jesus couldn't do that. He couldn't claim to be God, and so he uses the term Father. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago when you see the Father-Son relationship that's talking about deity and humanity? Deity can get worshipped. We worship, well, we can worship Jesus all the time now, but back then, deity, God, is looking for somebody to worship him in spirit and in truth. So he uses veiled language because how do you worship in spirit? But with spirit. But what is truth? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. So you worship God in spirit and in truth. Truth is humanity. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the truth. He is the way. And so when you worship God, you worship him in spirit because God, deity, is a spirit. But you're also worshiping him in his humanity because he is truth. And the truth came by the humanity of God. 
But Jesus, because he can't do what Satan did and what Adam and Eve did, he can't grasp after that equality because otherwise he would be doing what they did. He had to stay in a submissive role as a man. Read Philippians chapter 2. And did let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to equal of God, but made himself of no reputation and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. When he did that, that's the man, that's his humanity that is in a submissive role that is still to a certain extent in a submissive role until all enemies are put under his feet at the judgment. And then the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that all will be in all. And Jesus will be, will have, there won't be that role of a mediator anymore. Okay, so then that's in verse 23, and he goes on to explain it. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But notice what is in verse 24 as well. It's an italicized word. Sometimes these translators drive me crazy. Take that translator's word out. And it says, they that worship him must worship in the spirit and in truth. Not necessarily worshiping Jesus at this. That's how we have to do it in our humanity and in the things that God has given to us as the new creature in Christ. It's both our human gift and it's our spiritual gift to him. It's the reason why we have offerings and tithes because that is a human and natural way of worship. But then we also lift up our spirits to him in worship. And the other ways we worship in truth is not just financial, but it's helping somebody. It's, it's cleaning. It's it, whatever the ministry is. You're, you're giving it and worshiping him. And then, then the woman says, I know that the Messiah, she's, something's clicking in this woman as she's having this conversation with Jesus. And he says, she says, I know when, when he comes, he's going to tell us everything. And Jesus says, I am. I that speaketh unto you am. I am. Now, that did two things to that woman. Number one, he claimed to be the Christ. But number two, because she was part Jew, she knew the history of the Jewish nation. When he said, I am, it triggered in her all the way back to what she had learned as a child that says when Moses went to Pharaoh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob said, tell her, I am sent me. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. No, I'll tell you why. First John chapter three. Here's what it says in first John chapter three, verse two. This is in one of the little epistles at the end of the Bible. It says this. Um, well, let me read verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when, we sh when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. So when the trumpet sounds, 
and the dead in Christ are ra raised up first, and we which are alive, we're going to recognize him. We're going to see him because whatever takes place, the transformation of our body in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, there are mortal will put on immortality, our corruption will put on incorruptible. And when that takes place, we're going to recognize him because we're going to see him as he is. See, right now, and I shouldn't have even committed to finishing chapter 4 because we're not going to finish it. <clears throat> we'll finish it next week. Um, but we will finish this part of the passage because here's what people don't understand. And, and it's what I have a problem with people that don't catch the fact that all of God became a man. Uh, because the whole concept of the incarnation, incarnation means God became a man. And it was not just one third of God, all of God. Colossians 2 9, in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Okay? Here, here's the thing. It's 1 Timothy, and I won't go into it right now, but the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So if you remember my illustration when we talked about baptism a few weeks ago, you've got God on one side, and what I mean by God, I mean deity. Absolutely pure, that if human presence went into that, his atmosphere, it would be consumed. In the Old Testament, it's the reason why Moses had to have a cleft cut out of the rock, and he only saw the hinder part of the glory of God because it would have consumed him. Okay? So in order for, for that pure deity to get sinful humanity back into communion, because remember that's what was lost, was the communion, to get communion back to where we could be face to face like Adam and Eve were in the cool of the day, the only way that God could do that was to become like one of us. Okay? And so God takes on flesh. John 1.14 is one of the verses. That's the one we've been focusing on, but we've mentioned several now. And what that does then is now you have the God-man that's both deity and humanity. Okay? And then you have our humanity. So when his humanity is going to take all of the judgment... The Bible says it this way. He became sin for us who knew no sin. So in God's humanity, in the man Christ Jesus, he absorbed all of the sins of everybody from the beginning of time to the end of time. He absorbed all of those onto his shoulders. And when he went to the cross, God didn't die, but God's humanity died. God was alive and well. Deity was, never dies. It's a spirit. He can't die. Okay, but his humanity died on Calvary. And so when it says that the God the Father raised up the Son, it was deity raising up his humanity. Deity came back into the body that he had in Christ Jesus and raised up the dead humanity that paid the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. Okay, now the Bible says this. While he was there, he led the captivity captive. You ever read that? He descended and he led the captivity captive. In the Old Testament, the concept of hell or Hades or Sheol, in all interchangeable terms, was a twofold place. There was a place of torment and there was a place called Abraham's bosom, which was a place of peace. 
Okay, and if you read the story in the Gospels with Lazarus, it's him looking across the chasm. Okay, that's not hell to heaven. That's all hell from torment to a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom. Okay, so when the Bible says that Christ led captivity captive, he led the people that were in Abraham's bosom to paradise. He told the thief on the cross, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And the Bible says he led the captivity captive. Okay, and from that point on, when somebody dies in Christ, they go into the presence of Christ, into paradise, to be absent from the body, to be present with Christ. Okay, so you and I, though, are still alive and well here. We still have to have that mediator between pure deity and sinful humanity, or we would get consumed. So we have the man Christ Jesus, Calvary. Calvary is our connection to deity, okay? But when the trumpet sounds and we all go home for good, we aren't going to need the mediator anymore. We won't need Calvary anymore, okay? So if you can, I know it's a root picture in your mind, but if you can picture this is deity spirit, this is us humanity, and Jesus is laying on a cross right here as the mediator between us, God and man, the man Christ Jesus, when, if you read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when all of his enemies are made his footstool, this is my crude picture. Jesus will get up off that cross. The cross is gone. We are then united with him. And the Bible says he'll be all and in all, which means there will no, be no need for a distinction between deity and humanity. So when we gather around the throne, we are going to see one person. His name is Jesus, fully God manifest in the flesh, glorified, and we're going to see him. Does that make sense? And, and so that's what's happening. It's amazing that's happening in each one of these chapters. And, and it's going to culminate, well, not even culminate, but it gets all the way down to chapter 17 of the book of John. John chapter 17, verse 3, it's become, it's my theme verse, and that is this. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ who thou has sent. That they might know thee, deity and humanity. When you can, when you can recognize that. And, and here, here's the thing. When I look at it this way, it means so much more to me than if one-third of God came to save me. If it was just the Son. And if the son really didn't love me all that much, he was just doing what the father told him to do. There, there's a disconnect for me there. But when God so loves me that he became like one of me, and the originator, the creator, which is the word P-A-T-E-R, pater or pater, it's the Greek word for paternal, father. It's the same Greek word. You can say originator or father. So it can be God, the originator, or for the originators, or God so loved the world and that he gave his only begotten son. That son is a created one or a begotten one. It doesn't, the only reason why we use son is because Jesus was a man. Okay, it could be the offspring or a begotten one. The creator, the originator, begets something. And the thing that we will never understand until we get to heaven is that what he begat was really just part of him. The Logos became flesh. The plan and the blueprint became flesh. And John hammers it every chapter. 
over and over and over. Because when you see that, that becomes eternal life. So, and I'll close with this. So when you get that picture of mediation over here, I'm not looking for a laundry list of things that I got to check off to get to heaven. I'm done with that. Because all I know is Jesus is going to get me there. So if I can get to Jesus and do whatever Jesus wants me to do, I know I'm going to be in good shape. And I don't have to worry about jumping through denominational or statement of faith hoops and have to do this and this and this and this. And it's more than just saying, I believe. It's more than just saying, I accept you. It's when, well, I, I, when you say, I accept the Lord as my personal Savior, I, I say, Amen. But you have to define what accept means. Because for me, accepting means I'm going to accept everything that's about Him. And I'm going to become like Him. And I'm going to follow Him. And I'm going to listen to Him. And I'm going to obey Him. That's different than just a one statement saying, I accept. Okay, does that make sense? So all of a sudden, the concept of salvation leaves the realm of heaven and hell, and salvation comes down to, can I dwell with God? Now. I can be in God's presence now. Granted, it's not just like it's going to be in heaven, but I already said, it, it's a little bit of heaven down here. We can enter the throne room. We can be in his presence. Praise God.